All right, if you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. We'll be talking about marriage this morning and uh, making application to all of our lives, whether you're married or single. But if you, if you are married, uh, if you have a spouse, uh, I'm just guessing that you can remember that very moment when you realize that marriage might not be exactly what you expected it to be, right? Some of you are kind of laughing and some of you are being very careful not to get in trouble <laughs> where you're sitting, right? Uh, my wife, she can remember very vividly because that moment came, I don't know, we were married maybe two weeks, right? It was right after the honeymoon, shortly after the honeymoon. I, I was at work, I came home in the, the evening and uh, she was really excited to show me something. She had taken one of our wedding invitations and she had, she had cut it and she had put it in this really beautiful little frame that someone had given us as a wedding gift, right? And she, she showed it to me and you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's really, that's a wonderful, sweet moment, you know? And I just, just take her in my arms and kiss her and go, oh yeah, I remember the wedding and the honeymoon, just kind of relive our entire two weeks of marriage, right? At that moment in time. But I didn't. What I, what I did say in that moment is I looked at it and I said, do we have another one of those? Because that's not cut quite straight. <laughs> I know. Some of you ladies are going, you're a jerk. And I'm not going to listen to anything else you have to say. Let me just say, okay, that was 24 years ago. So I have learned, I've learned a, a little in the last 24 years, right? And, and uh, I, I love being married to my wife. I think she enjoys it as well most of the time. <laughs> Marriage can be a really wonderful thing, right? It can also be challenging and difficult and even disappointing in times, uh, sometimes because we have these expectations that are not, not actually accurate. Sometimes I think we actually miss the point of marriage, what marriage is actually all about. Some of our false expectations, uh, we expect that marriage will make us complete, marriage will make us whole. But in fact, because you've been made in the image of God and you are in Christ, you are complete. Quite irrespective of having a spouse or not having a spouse or having a good spouse or having a bad spouse, right? You are whole and you are complete because you're made in the image of God and you are in Christ. Or we think to ourselves, uh, marriage will eliminate all loneliness. It doesn't, right? It doesn't. Uh, even married people can be lonely. Sometimes it's, a, it's an even harder loneliness because that relationship is so vulnerable. When there's tension or conflict inside, it, it creates a really deep Loneliness, as I say to my single friends sometimes, uh, you know, it may be better to be single and lonely than married and lonely. Okay? Marriage doesn't necessarily eliminate all loneliness. Or we say to ourselves, uh, marriage will make me happy. I hope if you are married or you're going to get married that your marriage brings incredible happiness into your life. But that's not actually the goal of marriage. Right? That's not the point of marriage. That's not why you get married. Right? Same with kids. You don't have kids to make you happy. <laughs> Amen. Okay, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming, right? Now, your kids might supply a lot of happiness, varied, right, on how much relative happiness or other you get on any given day. But that's not the goal. That's not why you have kids. Uh, same with work, right? You don't, you don't work to find happiness. Now, I, I hope that your job provides you with a lot of happiness. But that's not the goal, of work. It's not the goal of work. It's not the goal of having kids. It's not the goal of marriage. So what is the goal? What's the point? Well, God designed marriage, so it stands to reason that he knows why he made it, and he knows how it's going to work best, right? So I want to go back to that original formulation of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. 
I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what's the goal of marriage? I would say that the goal of marriage is oneness. The goal of marriage is, is a oneness that reflects the image of God. It's a oneness that reflects the very image of God or the nature of God as he has placed it in us, as he has formed us. Right? So oneness is the goal, a oneness that reflects the very nature of God. So what do we mean specifically by oneness? Let me give you four characteristics. First, uh, oneness means becoming one uh, in affection. You remember that when Jesus was asked what the great command, greatest commandment was, he said, it's really simple. Let me summarize for you. It's this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, Jesus was not saying you can't love anything else. What he's saying is that your affections need to be in order. So the first in order is your love for God. And all other affections have to get in line after that then life will make sense. So if you're married, the second in the order of affections is your spouse. But if you're married and you love your job more than your spouse, or your hobby more than your spouse, or even your children more than your spouse, then your affections are disordered. And you will not be moving toward oneness. Notice what uh, is written here in 2.23 again. It says this, The man said, when the woman was brought to him, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You realize, these are actually the first words recorded by a human in the Bible. And in in the Hebrew, actually, it's it's exclamatory. Literally, it's like, wow, finally. You know what I mean? He's like, okay, this one. Literally, in Hebrew, it's, it's this one. This one. He's been looking at all of these other creatures, and up to this point, maybe... Dog was his best friend, right? Now he's like, no, this one, right? God doesn't have to tell him. He sees it and he knows. And his affections become ordered properly. Now, what happens in the fall? Previously, his affections have been God and then his spouse, Eve, and then, you know, maybe one of the animals, whatever. But in the fall, what happens? His highest love becomes himself. His highest love becomes self-protection, right? Not God, not Eve, but self. And so everything becomes disordered in his life. And what happens? He and, he and Eve are no longer moving toward oneness, right? They're moving toward separateness and alienation, right? So what does oneness mean? Well, oneness means first that we're becoming one in affection. Our affections are ordered the same toward one another and toward God. Second, becoming one in shared identity, Becoming one in shared identity. Verse 24, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh certainly includes uh, sexual union, but it's much more significant than that. It means that, that we're, we're one family. 
But we now, we share a name. We share an identity. We are becoming one in our sense of who we are, united with one another. Third, means becoming one in commitment. Uh, when Jesus is teaching on marriage, he actually quotes this verse, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds commentary. He says, what God therefore is joined together, let no man separate. In other words, he says, the, the point of this union that God has created is that it would be an, actually a, a permanent union. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So when I have couples come in uh, to my office and they're, they're struggling in their marriage, uh, and I, I hear one of them say, yeah, you know, so-and-so, they, they brought up divorce. I immediately kick them in the shins. <laughs> I'm not a counselor. Actually, that's not my profession. But I do it once in a while. Uh, my technique is a little off, maybe. But, you know, I try to get their attention. I'm like, seriously, how can you grow in oneness if you're issuing threats? Marriage should become the safest place on earth. The safest place on earth. What Becoming one means you're becoming one in, in safety and in security because you're becoming one in commitment to one another. Fourth, oneness means becoming one in purpose. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every moving thing that moves on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God says, this is the purpose for humanity. I want you to represent me. I want you to represent my authority. I want you to represent my character. I want you to to create things and put things in order and manage things in such a way that that I get the glory. And I want you to do it together. So remember, as God's looking out at all that he's created, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he looks at Adam and he says, it is not good. Right? Because a single solitary person cannot fully reflect the nature of a triune God So he brings Adam a spouse. So whether it is in marriage, if you're married, or in the body of Christ with fellow believers, we are designed to to represent God in community. And and the full representation of the nature of God doesn't happen apart from community. So Christians, you're advised, don't marry a non-believer, right? What partnership has light and darkness? You can't be one in purpose with someone who doesn't follow Jesus. Your deepest friendships need to be with Fellow believers, it doesn't mean that you, you're not reaching out into, into friendships with people who don't know Christ, but you can't be one in purpose with someone who doesn't know Christ. So, whether it's in the church, the body of Christ, or in marriage, right? body of Christ, bride of Christ, marriage, these are the relationships in which God says, I want you to do this together and experience a oneness of purpose. So notice how he describes uh, Eve, actually back in uh, chapter 2, Verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Right? Two descriptive words, helper and suitable. Uh, and helper is not a derogatory term. It's not diminutive. In fact, God uses it of himself. He says, I'm the helper of Israel. And frequently when the word is used, it's the, the helper is one who's stronger than the one being helped, obviously, because the one being helped needs something. There's a deficiency. 
If there's a deficiency, and so God says, I'm going to make you helper suitable or literally corresponding. Uh, it's a really interesting phrase in Hebrew. If I can visualize it for you, it's, it's as if Adam's looking in a mirror and he sees something that's identical but opposite, right? Corresponding to him. This is what you need, right? You need to be in relationship. Why? Let's go back to John 17 again. This is where we started our series. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I ask that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus says, Father, I pray that they would be caught up into our relationship. And I pray that their relationships, that they have one another, would reflect the relationship that Father, Son, and Spirit had for all of eternity. Why? So that the world would look at their relationships and they'd say, I need that. I need to be caught up into that. I don't have relationships like that. And so there are trans, there's a transcendent value to all of your relationships, whether that is within, with friends within the body of Christ or with your spouse. It's to draw other people to Jesus Christ. And so when I'm doing a wedding, I remind the couple, I say, you know, I I do hope that you have genuine happiness and consistent happiness, but there's a transcendent value to your relationship, and that's so that Jesus Jesus will be made known through you, right? That's the point. A oneness that reflects the very nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfection and unity for all of eternity, reflected in your relationships in the body of Christ and in marriage. So, how then... Do the two become one? I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And let's read verse 22. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I'm going to show you a quick video clip that I think gives some good cultural commentary on uh, Ephesians chapter 5. This is from the West Wing. It was a perfectly lovely homily on Ephesians 5.21. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, she's skipping over the part that says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. I do skip over that part. Why? Because it's stupid. Okay. There you go. There you go, right? So, you know, with a little uh, fear and trepidation, here we go. We're diving into Ephesians chapter 5, which the world thinks is generally stupid. I would say because uh, there's a misunderstanding of the nature of biblical submission and because we usually start reading in 522 rather than 521. So let's go back to 521. It says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's the controlling verse for the previous section and the subsequent section. Paul has just talked about relationships in the body of Christ. He says you want to have excellent relationships in the body of Christ be subject to one another, one another in the fear of Christ. That is, surrender your own needs, your own desires, your rights. You want to have great relationships in the body of Christ? Say no to self and yes to others. Be all in for others. Right? That's how you're going to have great relationships in the body of Christ. So, how do two become one? First, commit to mutual submission. Right? Commit to mutual submission. Again, inside marriage, outside of marriage. You want to have great relationships... It's never 50-50. 
Right? With a friend or with a spouse, if you say, well, you, you give a little and I'll give a little. You show up and do your part and then I'll do my part. And, you know, but if you show up with 49%, I'm going to show up with 49%. Right? It's conditional. And those are terrible relationships. If you say to yourself, I'm all in. Period. I'm all in. I'm in this relationship for the other person. And then the other person says, I'm in this relationship for the other person. 100%, 100%. That makes for a great relationship. This is exactly what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 2, where he says something crazy, radical. He says, consider one another as more important than yourself. Put others above yourself. That's, that's mutual submission. I regard you more highly than I regard myself. I'm willing to say no to myself so that I can say yes to you. So 521 is is just summarize the relationships in the body of Christ. Now Paul's going to turn and say it's also the controlling verse for what happens in the marriage relationship. How do husbands and wives mutually submit to one another? He's going to make application to that. In fact, 522, the verb is not actually repeated. It's just assumed. It says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Like, so, so in the fear of Christ that all of your relationships will honor Jesus and reflect Jesus. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives unto your own husbands as to the Lord. Right? Now he's going to give instructions as to what does this look like for the wife and what does it look like for the husband. And his instruction is this. Wives, imitate Christ's humility. Read with me verse 22 again. Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For as the husband is the head of the wife, so also, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Paul says, Wives, the husband is the head of your family. What does that mean? Well, by way of analogy, Christ is the head of the church. That is, Christ uh, is responsible for and has authority over the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, his, his bride. As well, the husband is responsible for his bride, and he has authority over his bride. And he's responsible to bring his bride into uh, uh, holiness, presentable before the Lord. So wives, your responsibility then in the way that you honor Jesus Christ is that you respect your husband's role as the head of your home. Again, verse 33. Nevertheless, let each individual also, let him love his own wife even as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. So what that means is this. First, wives, submission is voluntary surrender. Submission is voluntary surrender of your rights and your needs and your desires. And it's always voluntary. It's always voluntary. In other words, no one can make you submit. You choose to submit or you choose not to submit. Now, others can subjugate us, right? But no one can make us, in biblical terms, submit. Submission is a choice of free will. It's a choice of free will. As Jesus would say, even of himself, right? We're reflecting Christ in this. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up again. This is the command I received from my Father that I've chosen to submit to. Submission is always voluntary. So again, couples come into my, my office and they're, they're going at it a bit. And I just poke at them a little bit. And I say, well, it seems to me the problem is this. You're, you know, you're not obeying Ephesians chapter 5. Because Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands make your wives submit, right? 
<laughs> no, I want him to mean no, he does not say that. In other words, husbands, this is not your card to play. It's not your card to play. Wives, it's your card to play. And when you play it, you are reflecting Christ, who chose to submit himself to the Father. Right? He chose to submit himself to the Father. So, uh, practically speaking, what this means is not. It does not mean that men are godlier or more important than women. Or that husbands are godlier or more valuable than their wives. In fact, we're all equally made in the image of God. Right? He says, in the image of God he made them, male and female he created them. And in fact, the complete re- reflection of the image of God on earth was not present without male and female. And so Paul will pick up this idea. Peter picks up this idea in the New Testament as well and says, you are co-heirs of the grace of life. Peter tells his readers, you better honor your wife as a co-heir of the grace of life because if not, when you pray, I'm not going to listen. That's how seriously the Lord takes it. We're all, in fact, equal in the sight of God, equally broken in the sight of God. The gospel is this. We're all leveled before the cross. We're all, we're all sinners and we're all separated and we all come exactly the same way. That's why in Christ there is neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. We come and say we have nothing to offer God Instead, we just come as beggars needing the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. All equally valuable before the Lord. Submission does not mean that men are better leaders than women. This is not about a skill set issue. In fact, uh, you may be married and your wife is a better leader, a more natural leader. That's not what it's about. It's, it's about a choice voluntarily to submit and honor Christ or reflect Christ in the process. Because remember, Father, Son, and Spirit all equally share all the same attributes, which we can assume includes the, the, the skill of leadership, right? They're equal in that sense. But the son chose to take on a different role in order to accomplish salvation for us. Submission does not mean that all men should, or all women should submit to all men. This is about, this is about the home, right? This is not about uh, your business, and it's not about uh, city hall. It's not about um, education world. It's, th- this is just about the home. These are the, these are the realms over which God says, the home and church, body of Christ, this is where I want my nature to be reflected. He's not talking about about anything outside of those two realms. Fourth, it does not mean unquestioning obedience. We are all ultimately responsible for our choices to God. We all submit to varying earthly authorities, but if any of those earthly authorities usurp God's authority and tell us to do something that's illegal or unethical or immoral, we have to say no. So if your husband tells you to do something that's illegal or unethical or immoral, the answer is no. If governing authorities tell us to do something illegal, unethical, or immoral, our answer is no. If the elders to whom I submit, if they tell me to do something illegal, unethical, or immoral, my answer is no, because ultimately we're all responsible to the Lord. It also does not mean that women should have bland personalities. It doesn't mean you should be a a doormat and just... Let the world run over you. In fact, I encourage all of you today to go back and read Proverbs 31. This is a lady who gets it done. I mean, this, this is an amazing woman. She's incredibly energetic, and she's incredibly uh, talented. She's got a lot of skills. She's good interpersonally with people. There's a lot of personality there. And I remember uh, when my wife was first kind of wrestling through this a little bit, and Peter says, uh, the wives, you should have a gentle and quiet spirit. She goes, that's not me. That's not me. And I said, hey, talking about the spirit. I'm talking about your inner world being at peace. I'm like, you be you. I mean, if you've met my wife, she's got lots of personality. I'm like, I love it. I want, I want to have all that personality. I want the world to enjoy all of that. 
That's not what biblical submission is about. Biblical submission is about choosing voluntarily to surrender your needs, your desires, your rights, so that Christ can be reflected through you. Right? So what does submission do? Biblical submission puts Christ on display. Biblical submission puts Christ on display. I want you to hold your place here in Ephesians and turn to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See what Paul's saying? So I want you to have exactly the same perspective on life that Christ had. Who, although he exists in the very form of God, right? Equality with God in his nature and his attributes. He said, I'm going to choose instead to not grasp to all of those rights, all of those prerogatives of deity. Instead, I'm going to take on all the limitations of human flesh even to the point of not just becoming a a person, a human, but becoming a a slave. I'm going to make myself a slave of humanity so that humanity can be rescued. So, Jesus demonstrated this. Two really beautiful incidents that I love to meditate on. One is in the garden. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he fears the cross. He fears the cross so much so, sweat's coming down like drops of blood. He says, Father, cause this cup to pass from me. What's the cup? Um, The cup isn't, it's not just the physical suffering, right? And this is really critical to realize. The cup is not really simply the physical suffering. The more important aspect of Jesus' suffering was, was the separation from the Father. Right, as he hung on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somehow, and I, I cannot explain it, it's not, it's not explained for us in the word, but there was, a, there was a rupture in the Godhead. So this absolutely perfect relationship that had existed from all eternity between Father, Son, and Spirit was fractured. It was fractured. That was the real payment, right? That was the real, that was the real cost that Jesus paid. He was willing to do that. But as he's about to go to the cross, his father caused this cup to pass from him. Can you, can you accomplish your will any other way than us being separated? Because Father, Son, and Spirit had been in perfect harmony for all of eternity. He didn't want to lose that. But he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. Wow. But that's the prayer that God always answers. Not my will, but yours be done. And I say that because it was really, it was a very strong man who chose to submit. Jesus wasn't weak. Jesus wasn't overpowered by uh, the Romans. He wasn't overpowered by the Jews. It wasn't because he was abandoned by his disciples who could have fought off the Roman guards. That's not it. Jesus chose, right? It was a strong man who went to the cross. It was also a very secure man who went to the cross. Uh, Shortly before the garden incident, Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples. Remember at the end of the meal, Jesus gets up, he takes off his outer robe, he puts on a towel of a servant, he gets a a bowl, and then he gets down on his hands and knees and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Remember, uh, they're not sitting at a table, they're reclining, right? So they're on an elbow with their feet out in a U-shape, and Jesus is down on his hands and knees. The master, the teacher, the creator of the universe is on his hands and knees, 
And, and this is nasty work, right? They're wearing sandals and it's dusty, dirty roads. And, and he's, he's literally scrubbing the dirt out from between the toes of his disciples who are about to abandon him, even Judas. Right? Judas is still in the room at that point in time. But John gives us some commentary and he says, Jesus, knowing that he had come forth from the Father, knowing that he was going back to the Father, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, then he rose, put on the robe of his servant, And wash their feet. In other words, Jesus knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He knew that the Father was going to give the entire kingdom. He's going to rule over all the universe. And so, okay, I can wash the dirt off your feet. I'm good. It doesn't diminish who I am to serve. So biblical submission ultimately is a sign of strength and it's a sign of security whether it is in your marriage relationship or in your friendships in the body of Christ, when you're willing to say no to yourself and yes to others. Husbands, what's your responsibility? Husbands, imitate Christ's love. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 5 again with me. In verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. First thing that I want you to notice is this, that uh, wives are only uh, given 41 words of instruction, and husbands are given uh, 116 words of instruction, almost three times as much. Why? Why? Why is so much more written to the husbands than to wives? There are lots of snarky, we need it, right? We're slow, we're whatever, right? Uh, I'm going to say uh, all all true, all of the above, uh, but also that in the culture of Paul's day, Jewish, Greek, or Roman, it wasn't really radical for Paul to say, wives, respect your husbands and honor your husband's role as the head of your home. That's not radical. What's radical is when Paul says, uh, husbands, uh, your family doesn't exist for you. Right? You exist for your family, right? The worldview is that the wife and the children are all there to meet the father's needs and desires. That's why, that's why they're in place. But Paul's saying, no, it's actually exactly the opposite. Husbands, you exist to meet the needs and desires of your wife and your children, right? You're the, you're the chief servant. This is, this is radically, radically different in Paul's worldview and why Christian marriages are very, very different. So, Paul is going to give some specifics of what it looks like to imitate Christ's love. First is this. uh, Assume responsibility. If God has placed you as the head of the home, that means you have responsibility and you have authority. Assume responsibility. Take up the responsibility. There's a really funny little story was told about a a Jewish boy who came home one day and he told his mom, he said, Mom, this is great. We're having a school play and I got a role. She said, what role did you get? He goes, it's great. I got the best role. I'm the the father. I'm the papa. And his mom was furious. She goes, you go straight back and you tell that teacher that you want a speaking role. (laughs) Yeah. 
Satan came and he tempted Eve. And where was Adam? It's very vivid in the Hebrew. Because Adam was standing right there. And he was silent. That's where the, the Jewish humor comes from. Adam didn't speak up. Adam didn't, he didn't contradict what Satan was saying. He didn't protect his wife. He didn't guard his family. Right? He, he, let, he let the deceit sink in deeply. And then he followed along this pathway of deceit. In large measure, the reason we're in this mess that we're in right now, right here, right now, is because Adam was passive and Adam was silent, which is the exact opposite of love. What is love? Love, love initiates, right? Love protects, love secures, right? Love, love chooses to give even if the per- person doesn't ask for it, even if the person doesn't deserve it. That's, that's genuine agape love. It's unconditional love. It's the opposite of being passive. So, husbands, you may not know exactly how to lead your home. Okay, just start. Dive in. Read a book. Go to a seminar, right? Listen to videos online. Figure it out, right? Go after it. Put that kind of level of energy into it that you'd put into your job because it's the most important job you have, right? Take responsibility as the head of your home. Second, sacrifice and serve. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Literally, literally gave his life. He allowed himself to be, to be beaten, to be crucified. He allowed the relationship between father and son and spirit to be ruptured and fractured. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, in our cultural setting, you're probably not going to be called upon literally to die for your wife, but you can say no to yourself every day. Right? Say no to your, your own sense of your rights and your own desires, even your own needs. Jesus would say of himself, the son of man, right, creator of the universe, Second member of the Trinity did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's, that's genuine spiritual leadership, right? So you don't, you don't lead as dictator, you don't lead as CEO, you lead as servant. Sacrifice and serve. Practically speaking, that means there's no job around the home that's below the dad. The dad sets the example, the husband sets the example of sacrificial servant leadership. Third, protect and secure. How does Christ love us? Unconditionally. He knows absolutely everything about us. Even, even that stuff that you keep secret from everyone, Jesus knows. And then still loves you. And says to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Our relationship is safe and secure, not because of anything you do, not because of who you are, but because of me. Because of me. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You will always be safe. You will always be secure. Husbands, this is your job to create this this atmosphere in which there's safety and security. Uh, Remember how love is described in 1 Corinthians 13? At the end, Paul says, you know, love is patient, love is kind. He says, uh, love endures all things. Love never fails. Love never leaves. Love love never steps back. Love, Love always stays engaged. Where Solomon says, put me like a seal on your arm, like a seal on your heart. Because love is as strong as death, right? Man, that's, that's, that's what you do. You create safety, you create security in your home. Now, what's the result? Turn back to Genesis 2 and verse 25. Let's read verse 24 again. It says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They will become one. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, 
Why, why did um, God direct Moses to include verse 25, just so that when we're 13 we feel embarrassed? <laughs> no. Uh, no, that's not it. That's not it. They're both naked and they were not ashamed. That is, they're completely transparent, they're completely vulnerable, and they're completely safe. Right? That's oneness. There's no cause for fear. There's no deficiency in me that you're going to take advantage of. Instead, I'm, I'm safe with you. I'm secure with you. We have grown in oneness. So husbands, you know, as you love your wife as Christ loved the church, that displays Christ to the world. It creates safety and security for your wife. Wives, as you choose to respect and honor your husband, you're displaying Christ's willingness to submit to the Father. Right? And so people see that. They see your growing oneness. And they say, I don't have relationships like that. I want that. I need that. In fact, again, when couples come in and they're really struggling in their marriage, I start with the husband first. Like, if you're loving your wife as Christ loved the church, I think things will be working out better. In fact, early on in my, my ministry, I did a wedding one time, and uh, as I was doing the wedding, there was a lady sitting out there, and like, her eyes were just like psh, burning, right? Because I started teaching from Ephesians 5, and she's like burrowing into me. I'm like, oh man, I don't know what she's thinking, but it's not good, right? Finished the wedding, and we're standing in the reception, and sure enough, this lady finds me, and she's like, psh, you know, making, I'm like, oh man, where do I go? I mean, she's just on point. She comes up to me, and she says, I want you to understand something. I'm Jewish, and I'm an atheist. And when you started reading that passage from Ephesians chapter 5 about submission and wives, I thought, oh no, here we go again. But when you described how a husband should love his wife, I thought to myself, if my husband loved me like that, I'd love to follow him. And I said, where is he? Let me talk to him. No, I didn't. Now I would, but you know, back then I was a lot younger. But now I, yeah, okay, let's talk. Husbands, love your wives. Go first, right? So how do we apply this? Let me give you a, a couple of thoughts. Um, it was interesting. This, this, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I asked the staff. I just sent out an email, and I said, give me, some, give me your best marriage advice. And we have probably over 50% of our staff is, is single because we're such a young staff. And interestingly, some of the best advice that came back was from our staff that's not married. Right? In particular, think, they're thinking through how do these principles apply in our lives and some really profound insights and a real sensitivity. You know, I didn't, I did not get married until I was almost 31. And so I, um, I lived as a, as a single guy for a long time. So really sensitive to that. And it made me think about uh, the different people who are, who are coming in to a sermon and the the topic is marriage. Um, It may be that you uh, were married and now you're not married because you're divorced. And I want to remind you that there is no scarlet D in the body of Christ. It's not the final word on your life. God has given you more years on this earth, so live those effectively. Live those in deep relationships with other believers. Practice this mutual submission. And in those relationships, people see Jesus Christ. They see a model of Christ. You can model Christ, married or single. It may be that God allows you to get married again. It may not. But you can still be useful in making disciples for the kingdom of God and reflecting the image of God on earth. It may be that you were married and your spouse passed away, but God has given you extra years on the earth. Make the most of those years. Now you have, you have wisdom and insight that you can give to, to others around you. If you're divorced or you're widowed, you have suffering that you can share that will, that will minister to others. Make the most of that time. If you've never been married, take advantage of your singleness. 
I did. I, I, I did a lot of mission stuff. I had so much freedom. I didn't have to consult with anybody on the choices that I made. And so I, I got to do mission stuff all over the world. I got to invest deeply in a lot of relationships. Uh, I didn't have to consult anybody else about how I spent my money. And so I could give and be you know, really generous. Uh, you know, and I, I, could just, I just took advantage of that time and that moment. I would encourage you to do the same. Okay? Take this as a gift of a period of time as well in your life. Uh, and for all of us, this is true of marriage, but also the body of Christ, let's begin to figure out what does it look like for me to be mutually submissive in all my relationships? That is, I go into my relationships for the other person, not for me. I'm 100% in because I want to be there to bless. Wives, particular encouragement to you, make room for your husband to lead in your home and celebrate when he tries. Just celebrate when he tries. If he hasn't led before, that, that's going to be a frightening thing. He won't know what to do. He won't do it perfectly. Celebrate when he makes attempts. You know, my, my wife, one of her spiritual gifts is encouragement, and uh, she, she encourages my efforts, and that has encouraged me to make more efforts. I remember early on when our kids were, were little, uh, before we even had Anna Joy with Ben, you know, I'd come home uh, in the evening, and she's tired, and she's exhausted, and she's kind of ready to wind down, and I'm like, all right, let's play, right? And I would just come in, and, you know, I'd do bath time, and there's more water outside the tub than inside the tub, you know, and I'm putting our son down, and I'm wrestling him, and I'm tickling him, right? And, she, you know, I mean, like, I'm, I'm just amping everything up where she's ready to amp down, and she's, honey, I'm so grateful that you want to be engaged with our, ki- our son, and I love it that you love him. Could you just do it a little calmer, right, you know? But she encouraged my effort and applauded my effort. Uh, wives, encourage your husbands. Right? Praise every effort that they make, even if it needs a little tweaking. Uh, husbands, pursue your wives. Keep chasing. For all of your married life, chase, pursue. There was something in her that made you, way back when, write a really stupid poem, right? You, you'd never written a poem before, but it's just so dumb. And you re- re- Try it again, right? Write another poem. You'll be stunned. Right, chase, right, be, be in pursuit. She wants to know that she's always being pursued. Um, my wife told me I should use this illustration, so I uh, okay, I will. Last week I I I won. I did really well last week. Um, last week was the uh, anniversary of our first date, and our first date was down at uh, Los Norteños, which is out of business in Bryan. But we had. Uh, chicken enchiladas, and we sat and talked for like three hours, right? That was our very first date, and it was February 7th. It was our first date, so uh, I was at the grocery store, so I stopped, and I bought her some flowers and a frozen box of chicken enchiladas, right? She's had the flu all week. So I came home with flowers and a box of frozen chicken enchiladas, and I handed them to her, and she's like, You remembered. I remembered because there's an alarm on my phone. Whatever works, right? <laughs> she felt pursued. And I confessed why I remembered. I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't want to take credit where no credit's due. I still got credit, right? Because she wants to know that I want to come after her. Because ultimately, that is a reflection of God. We're broken, we're sinful, we cannot chase after God. We can't reconcile a relationship. So what does God do? He chases after us in Christ. And all of us in all our relationships, we want to feel that, right? We want to feel that. Because it reflects the way that God loves us, right? So let's go and do that for one another. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would uh, give us a sense of security in our identities in you, 
uh, courage that we can imitate Christ, uh, even when we feel like we're in deficit ourselves, that we can reach out and we can give 100% and you will supply what we need. I do pray, Father, that you would make uh, the marriages in this church, maybe some of them really are hurting and broken and they need some help right now, I pray that they'd have the courage to reach out to friends or to uh, our elders or staff or to a counselor and say, please help. We, we're not one, we're not moving toward oneness, but we need to. Father, I pray that you you bring some incredible healing. I pray, Father, that... Uh, the friendships in this church would be so reflective of the sacrificial love of Christ that people would look in, maybe they'd, get, they'd bump up against our relationships or come to one of our events and say, you people are really weird. You're really different. You, whatever you have, I want that. I want to be loved like that. I pray, Father, that even this year, we would see men and women trust Jesus Christ because of the way that we love one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you. Have a great week loving one another. See you next week.